As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. You are listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and over this third series, Alistair and I will be looking at some of the key themes and ideas in the Narnia Chronicles. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. On today's episode, we will be focusing on the voyage of the Dawn Treader. Alistair, we're talking about the voyage of the Dawn Treader and one of the first things that struck me is the question of whether Lewis is anti-modern. So when he's talking about Eustace's parents, he says that they're up to date and they're advanced, but it doesn't sound like a particularly positive description of them. He says that they're vegetarians, non-smokers, teetotalers, and they wore a special kind of underclothes. So what, I mean, what's he trying to say here? I think what Lewis is is doing here is poking fun at people who, in effect, simply go with the latest cultural trend. And certainly in the post-war period, there were a number of things that were seen as being very culturally trendy, were breaking with the past. And what Lewis is simply doing here is to poke fun at these people. And what he's trying to do to us is to create a sense of Oh, how shall I put it? Um, a sense of deep sympathy for Eustace. If you've got parents like this, what hope is there for you? <laughs> and he says that Eustace is far too stupid to make anything up himself. Why does Lewis prize imagination so highly, do you think? Well, I think there are two points to make here. One of them is that clearly uh, Lewis wants to make us um, feel that Eustace is is definitely one of those little people who is really not going to go anywhere. And then when he goes somewhere, you know, you, you really begin to wonder why. But I think the other point is to say that really Eustace is unimaginative. I think I think that, that that's a key point, that he basically um, is one of these people who relies on reason, but he's got very little reason to rely on. And that's it. In other words, he's got a very limited grasp of the world. I think One of the things that Lewis says, which is really important, is this. This is from one of his essays. He says, reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. And I think it's very helpful because it's not just, you know, the way things are. It's this sense of seeing what they're all about. And what Lewis is saying is to to, to see to, to, to the heart of things what they really mean. That's something the imagination does. How do you think Lewis would have thought that we could encourage our children to use their imagination? I guess that feels particularly pertinent today when they've got screens and all sorts of other things vying for their attention. How do we encourage them to use their imagination? 
Well, I think that's a really interesting question. And I would have to say that as I read Lewis, he would say you've got to do something which forces you to use your imagination. So watching um, videos or um, things like that, if anything, stifles the imagination. I think Lewis would say read books or listen to the radio because those force you to use your imagination to to imagine what you're reading, to imagine um, the radio play that's happening sound-wise. You create the images. So I think that Lewis might well say to us, look, we do live in a culture which in effect diminishes the imagination by providing it for us. You know, it creates the images for us, whereas we ought to be generating those for ourselves. A sizable chunk of this story is devoted to the Narnians stopping human trafficking. Uh, one of the first things that Lord Byrne says is, I've moved his sufficiency, the governor, a hundred times to crush this vile traffic in man's flesh. Thankfully, they are able to free all of the slaves in this story. But why do you think human trafficking is such a big issue um, for Lewis and, and something that he clearly felt needed to be addressed in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? It's not entirely clear to me why Lewis has singled this out. I mean, we can agree that it's a terrible thing. And of course, it, it was something that really was debated intensely in England um, at the time of Wilberforce. You know, that was a very, very significant step forward, the abolition of the slave trade. But I'd, it's not clear to me why Lewis has fixed on this at this point. I think probably he was tr he was hoping to... Um, to choose something that everyone would say this is wrong uh, to try and provide a starting point for his narrative. But it's not entirely clear to me why he's fix fixed on this specific issue. There are many others he could have chosen, but this clearly is the one that he chose to use for this occasion. Why do you think Lewis picked a dragon for Eustace to turn into? I think Lewis uh, really got this idea of the dragon from Nordic mythology. And I think that basically the point here is that Nordic mythology uh, had a very well-established line of narrative, which was of greedy people turning into greedy creatures. And of course, uh, we're thinking mainly of Fafnir the dwarf, who uh, coveted the gold of Loki, and um, he woke one morning to find he turned into a dragon because a dragon was a symbol of greed. I think one of the points that Lewis is making here is that just as, uh, as Fafnir turned into a dragon because he was greedy, so the same thing is happening here with Eustace. In other words, he has become what he desired. I think that's the key point that Lewis is trying to bring out. It's all about saying um, this unfortunate person has ended up becoming a slave of his own desires. And, of course, he can't break free from this, so he's trapped. And maybe that goes back to that question we were looking at earlier about the whole business of slave trafficking, because the idea of being enslaved to forces which control you is actually quite a significant theme in this particular novel. And how are we supposed to feel towards Eustace? Because, as you say, are we meant to blame his parents? Are we meant to feel sorry for him? Are we meant to dislike him? It feels like there's lots of different things going on. Well, I have to say, a part of me feels sorry for Eustace, and part of me feels, well, you deserve that. <laughs> um, I, and um, maybe, maybe that's what Lewis wants us to feel. Maybe, maybe Lewis is, is saying, look, um, there is no injustice in you 
um, in effect, having to realize the implications of your desires. And then you realize you cannot break free from these desires for wealth or for power or for ambition or whatever they are. But that, I think, would be a very censorious judgment. And I think what uh, Lewis wants us to do is say, oh, dear, um, maybe he deserved it, but surely we can do something to help him break free from the situation, except, of course, there is nothing that anyone can do, and certainly there's nothing Eustace is able to do. And that, I think, is is a very important point. The change within Eustace's character seems to start almost as soon as he becomes a dragon, why, why do you think that is? And do you think there's a kind of parallel in our own world that Lewis is trying to get across? I think that um, Lewis is trying to um, bring out the point that once you are trapped within a situation, for example, trapped by greed or trapped by sin, because you become disconnected with um, possible sources of transformation There's no way you can get free from these. But also, in effect, the situation becomes worse. That in effect, by by buying into this way of thinking, you are cutting yourself off from the sources of possible um, liberation from this. And so, in effect, Eustace becomes completely entrapped within the world and it's not pervious to intervention from outside. There's nobody who's able to say, Eustace, do this, or Eustace, let me help you, because he's so deeply enmeshed within these desires of greed. And then, of course, he realizes that this is not a good thing. I wish I was my old self back again, but he can't change himself. He's trapped by something and cannot break free. And do you think there's a sense in which love could get us through even the toughest of situations? So there's a line where it says, The pleasure quite new to him of being liked and still more of liking other people was what kept Eustace from despair. Is Lewis trying to say something there, do you think? Oh, I think he is. I think that um, that, that, that in effect, this this is about hope being kept alive, despite a a complete absence of hope and reality. And I think that um, there are various things that Lewis is trying to indicate here, which is that... um, you know, we are able to um, hope for something, even though we realize that there might not be anything out there that could transform us. And of course, the the radical change in Eustace's situation from um, the intervention of Aslan is very, very important. I think one of the things that Lewis is doing here very successfully is actually helping us to think about sin, because um, I mean, for many people, sin is a very abstract idea. And one of the brilliant things that Lewis does in this novel is to give us a way of thinking about sin, which helps us to personalize. It's a force that takes over us and makes us become something we don't want to be. We can't break free from it. But Aslan is able to um, to deliver us by, in effect, stripping away its power and liberating us. So it's a very powerful affirmation of the ability of God to break the stranglehold of sin and enable us to become new people. As you say, that's such a powerful encounter, isn't it? When Aslan begins to scratch off the dragon skin, um, there's a line that says the very first tear that he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. So it's clearly a really painful process. And then Aslan gives him new clothes. What do you think Lewis wanted us to take from this? I think he wants us to take two things. One is the realisation that actually 
without Aslan, we're stuck. <laughs> if I put it very crudely, that actually, um, you know, we, we have to recognize the limits of human abilities in the face of sin. We're trapped by it. We can't break free from it. That's the bad news. The good news is that there is someone who's able to do this. And we have to allow this process to happen. It may well be painful. Um, the New Testament, for example, talks about dying to sin. That, that's a quite dramatic metaphor. Um, but nevertheless, it can happen and it really does happen. And I think that that is important because as you read the story, it's not just that Eustace becomes a boy again. It's that Eustace reverts to being a boy, but a better boy. See what I'm saying? It's, it's not just about reversion to your old state. It's about transformation into something where you are changed. You've learned from this experience. And I think that's very important because many people will find that thinking about the experience of sin actually helps them to become better people by enabling them to identify what went wrong and what they can do about it. It's quite a graphic image, really, isn't it, for a children's book? I, I think it's a horrible image in one sense because, you know, it's all about, you know, scratching away your skin and, and clearly it's very, very painful. And then, of course, Aslan throws Eustace in, in a well. So it, it really is very, very dramatic. I mean, you can all see the symbolism for baptism in Romans 6 there. But the, the point is, I think that, uh, that many children would read this and I think they, they might well turn to the grown-up who was reading them and say, I don't like that bit. It's, it's frightening. Um, maybe Lewis wants us to be frightened by sin just to realize how if this takes over then we really are in a very bad place eustace does begin to change but it's not immediate and and it sort of talks about the fact that the cure has begun but he had relapses it does lewis say much about the christian journey do you think in these narnia chronicles is is that what he's referring to i think lewis is constantly um helping us to see that um there is this grand story of Narnia, and each of us have a role to play in advancing that. But everyone has a different story and a different role to play. So I think Lewis is really inviting his readers to ask what role they might play. But in terms of um, growth in faith, in terms of discipleship, I think that Lewis gives us some episodic insights. You know, there's this happened, there's that happened. But if you like, there's no coherent account of what this transformation is like. We, we can build up one for ourselves, but Lewis isn't giving us. He's giving us its components and asking us to see the bigger picture that lies behind these. Now, do you think the slightly terrifying challenges that they face, the sea serpent, the water that turns everything gold, are they meant to represent anything in particular, do you think? Or, or is it just about the kind of challenges that we'll face along the way? I think that the key to understanding Lewis here is to realise that Lewis is picking up on a literary genre. And that the genre is um, making a voyage a difficult voyage in which there isn't really an external enemy. There, there is you and you grow through this experience. That means you face enemies, you face challenges, um, you face difficulties and through these things you grow. And I think that different people face different challenges and different dangers. I think what Lewis is really doing is to say the voyage of the Dawn Treader is a, a sort of um, an analogy for for life, you know, you, you pass through difficult situations, difficult seas and so on, 
But nevertheless, you grow as a person as you do so. And even when you pass through difficult situations, you're able to learn from these. And Lewis um, adds very, very clear Christian elements to this, the ideas of grace, the idea of forgiveness. But in many ways, uh, the whole idea of the voyage of the dawn treader is that of personal growth as you realize who you are, what you might be able to do, and the difference that you can make. So it's a very significant theme, and Lewis recasts it in a Christian way. Up until the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we we tend to see Lucy painted in a really positive light. Um, Clearly, Lewis had a bit of a soft spot for Lucy, but, but we do glimpse the sort of weaker parts of her character when she encounters the magician's book. Why do you think Lewis does this? Is is that intentional? Well, I, I think it must be. I, I wonder sometimes if Lewis felt, oh, um, I have been rather uncritical of Lucy. I, I, she <laughs> comes across as somebody who is uh, infallible, if I, for, for want of a better word. And certainly we do see Lucy's vulnerable side here. And I think it's quite a sweet um, narrative. You know, it, it actually... I mean, what she does is not absolutely terrible, but you, nevertheless, you, you, you feel you can understand her. You, you, you can, as she describes the temptations she feels, you think, actually, I, I might do that as well. You know, it, 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 and maybe Lewis is saying, look, sin affects even the strongest of us, even those who we think are beyond this. And even though we may feel that this wasn't actually a major problem, but nevertheless, it could have been. And I think in many ways, it, it's a warning against complacency, against overconfidence. Maybe Lewis is just saying, look, you know the way I like Lucy, you know the way I, I, I sort of way build her up. Even she can go wrong, so can you as well. So maybe it's just a kind of corrective to, to his earlier narrative. Do you think there's something in particular that Lewis wants us to take from the slightly terrifying encounter of the island where dreams come true and, um, and Lord Roop? Well, I I, I think um, myself that there is a real issue here, which is what happens if your dreams come true? In other words, I I wonder if Lewis is exploring a really interesting issue, which is whether our dreams actually are not quite as innocent as we think they might be, and whether actually the world of dreams that many people think are benign and happy and great actually turn out to be a nightmare. And again, it's all about this theme of entrapment, which we find throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe some people are trapped by their dreams, which in effect, if I can put it like this, fix them in certain tracks. I think what Lewis is really is really wondering is whether sometimes we're, we're trapped by them. But I personally... Um, feel that uh, Lewis is here again, like you know, saying, look, you thought Lucy was okay, she went wrong here. He's saying, look, you think dreams are okay. Well, actually, maybe they're not. Maybe sometimes we just need to challenge these and try very hard not to allow them to be fulfilled. Bravery is something that's come up throughout the Narnia Chronicles, but in some ways, Reepcheep is depicted as one of the bravest characters. What, why do you think he's one of the bravest characters? And what do you think Lewis was trying to get us to take from that? 
I think Reaper Cheap is one of the most um, amiable characters in the Chronicles of Narnia. I think everyone I've met says, oh, I really love Reaper Cheap. You know? <laughs> and it's partly because he's a very brave but very small animal. And again, there's Lewis's theme. It's the little people, the animals who really matter. And Reaper Cheap clearly is just brave. He's daring. He's loyal. And these are all virtues that we really warm to. And I think that actually, if I can put it like this, Lewis is just saying, look, um, you may think of him as a comic figure but actually in that comedy there is depth there's moral depth there's personal depth and actually you know we're tempted to laugh at this but no no let's not laugh at him let's laugh with him and let's realize that actually in what he's saying you know there's something we all can learn from this when Edmund asks the daughter of Ramadu, the retired star, how they can trust that she is a, f a friend, she says, you can't know, you can only believe or not. Do you think Lewis is there espousing blind faith or, or is there something else he's trying to say? I don't think he's espousing blind faith. I think he's making the very pragmatic point that when you try to assess people, you have to make a judgment. And sometimes you get it right. And sometimes you get it wrong, but you've got to make a decision one way or the other. And very often you discover the right answer over time. And that, I think, is an important point that very often, you know, in thinking, if you think about Aslan, for example, very often people discover what Aslan is like over time as they get to know him. Again, notice the importance of encounter with Aslan. That's something that very often is transformative. So I think one of the points that's coming out from this very brief and very, um, I think, uh, incisive uh, observation um, is that, you know, when when you're thinking about God, for example, you know, it's almost it's almost like the first disciples on the shore of Lake Galilee. You know, Christ says, follow me. And they they don't really know, but they make a judgment. They say, we trust him. And actually, as they follow Christ, they get to know him. They get to understand him. And their original judgment is confirmed. But they had to make that decision right there and then. Do we go with him or do we not? I think that, that really is, is quite an important point being made there. Is the end of the world meant to represent something in our own world? Because it's, it's a strange place, isn't it? Where, you know, they don't need to eat as much or drink as much or, or sleep as much. Is there something that Lewis wanted us to learn from this part of the story? I have to say I've struggled to to find something there that strikes me as being um, spiritually significant. I, I think the, the imagery suggests that of um, the aging process where your appetites and various things diminish as you get older. But I have to say, I, I didn't really make the connection with this. Um, so I, I personally didn't really quite feel I'd got what this was all about. Now, I'm sure I'm missing something uh, because <laughs> Lewis is normally, um, you know, uh, very, very significant. But on this point, I'm afraid I, I, I have not yet found what that's all about. Why do you think Aslan appears to Edmund, Lucy and Eustace at the end as a lamb rather than as a lion? I think in many ways this is about uh, an interplay of the imagery that the Christian Bible uses to speak about Christ. Yes, he is the lion of Judah. I and mean, that's a very important theme. But he's also the lamb who was slain. And I think that's one of the reasons why Lewis is trying to bring out that there is a a richness to the Christian understanding of Christ, not just 
in effect, the, the, the bold, brave lion. But he is that. He conquered death. But also the one who was willing to be slain. And I think that's a very important point because sometimes we tend to think it's one or the other. And what Lewis maybe is just saying to us here is, look, um, the lion is the lamb and vice versa. And maybe we just need to make sure we hold both of these here. The roaring lion, the gentle lamb, these are both part of who Christ is. And sometimes we come to Christ through the lamb bit, sometimes through the lion bit. But actually, they're all part of this. And maybe there's also um, hinting at the ending of John's gospel, where, you know, they have this very famous meal on the shore of the lake. And actually, Christ appears to them. And the question really is, is Lewis trying to connect up with that and bring out the depth of Christ? Uh, I think it probably is. Well, one of the things he says to the children is that in their world, he has another name. You must learn to know me by that name. What is that name and, and what's Lewis trying to say through that? Well, I think Lewis is really making the point that um, um, that the whole Chronicles of Narnia, particularly the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, but actually all of it is really what he calls a supposal. And a supposal is basically saying, look, um, suppose the Son of God were to become incarnate. In a world like Narnia, what would that look like? And, of course, this is all about Aslan. And then, of course, Lewis wants us to move from that supposal to theological reality. We're not talking about Narnia anymore. We're talking about our own world. And if God were to become incarnate in that world, what would he look like? And what would his name be? And, in effect, I think that what Lewis is saying here almost is that there's this generic idea of incarnation. But it takes a specific form in our own world. Narnia may help us to understand some of the themes, some of the ideas, but we have to go to our own world and see how it happened for us. And that's why Lewis is saying, look, you need to understand that story and that name. And of course, he's getting at the identity of Jesus Christ. Well, what a way to leave this podcast. Thank you so much, Alistair. Thank you again, Ruth. It's been great fun. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. Next week, we will be looking at the silver chair.